Welcome to the Audit Podcast, the number one podcast for the audit profession. Be sure to check the show notes for all of our social media channels and to sign up for the Audit Podcast newsletter. Now, here's your host, Trent Russell. This podcast is sponsored by Green Skies Analytics, where they do everything tech-related, but only for internal audit. Although compliance and risk management, y'all are cool too, so feel free to check it out also. To find out more, please visit greenskiesanalytics.com, but it's more likely that you're just going to Google it. So to find out more, please Google Green Skies Analytics. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Audit Podcast. Today on the show, we have Paul Sobel. Paul is currently a senior advisor to the International Internal Audit Standards Board. He previously chaired that same board and is also the IIA's representative at IFAC, the International Federation of Accountants. He's been involved with the IIA in various roles for over 35 years and was also the former COSO chairman. For this episode, we wanted to get, there's been a lot of negative talk around the proposed standard, so we wanted to get the other side of the story. Hard to imagine anyone better than Paul to give that opinion, considering he helped write a lot of what's in there, or at least some of what's in there, and has overseen it. And so that's why we have Paul on today. A lot of the questions that we discussed came from what Paul's been hearing, some of the feedback that he's seeing relative to the standards, as well as just what we've been seeing, mostly on LinkedIn, where uh, folks have had questions or concerns. And so we we took those, kind of aggregated them together, and then walked through those with Paul. So some of those are, what, why is this one such a big deal? Why is this update different? And honestly, why should we in internal audit even care? One of my favorite questions, and shout out again to Hal Guerin, friend of the show, friend of Paul's, uh, Hal's also been involved in writing the previous um, standards. And Hal made this brilliant post. I like it, if nothing else, because of the data that he showed in there. There's this huge increase in the, the usage of the words must and ensure in the proposed standard. So the usage of the word must increased about two and a half times from 130 to 300. The use of ensure increased nine times from 10 to 90 and so we just simply asked why are, that had to be a conscious decision that was made why was that made and then without any context if you just heard or read that the proposed standards have eliminated the code of ethics you might go yep that sounds awful this is terrible already so we wanted to understand why that was the case why those have been eliminated and then we talk about a lot more in this episode but to keep the intro relatively short the last thing I wanted to bring attention to is there's a link in the show notes where you can read the proposed standards and you can submit your feedback. And so that's kind of how we end the show is what's that process like? How are you going to be able to take all this feedback in, discuss it and make changes? So just wanted to make sure that we highlight that. Here we go. There's been a lot of, I think, natural negative reaction to the proposed standards largely because it is a change and it's a decent sized change and whenever there's change whether in an organization or otherwise i feel like as human beings almost we go nope i don't want to do that i like the i liked it the way things were for most of us and so i think we're at the point uh where it's been like okay we see what's coming maybe we like it we don't but we're certainly more open to understanding what's going on and not just having the initial reaction of change bad i don't like it and so i want to hit on kind of the other side and look to understand this a little bit more and get your perspective on it but this isn't necessarily new in the sense that there have never been changes in the past there's been 
uh, updates to the standards in the past, but what makes this one different and why should we care? Yeah, so um, the last, what I'd call real significant update uh, to the chan the standards was back in 1999. So, I mean, we are, uh, that, that, was, that was probably the biggest one. There was another one maybe 20 years ago, the 2003, that was fairly large. Um, but uh, the standards board has a practice of at least every three years considering whether some changes are necessary. And that doesn't mean they'll go out for exposure, but uh, they at least consider it every three years. And sometimes it may take four or five years. When looking at it this time, they realize a, a variety of things. One is that uh, the world is changing very quickly. The expectations of internal auditors continues to go up. And so therefore, they wanted to make sure that the standards you know, truly represented what the internal audit profession could be and needed to be in today's world. Secondly, the, the way the, the International Professional Practices Framework, IPPF, was structured, um, in order to get the kind of the full picture of a particular topic, you had to go multiple places. So you had a mission and definition that were, were very short, but say you know, both of those had the word objective or objectivity in them. Then there's a, it was a code of ethics, which had a particular principle and rules of conduct around objectivity. And then there's also the standards, which had some standards on objectivity. Then in 2017, I guess it was, beginning of 2017, there was a new set of implementation guides. There's an implementation guide for each standard, which of course then covered objectivity. And then occasionally there could be practice guides. So there was a lot of complaints about if we want to learn something about something, we have to go to so many different places. Mm. And we'd rather have it all be in one place, kind of one-stop shopping in today's digital world. Why can't you bring it all together? And you know that plus uh, the emphasis from the International Professional Practices Framework Oversight Council, which is some independent individuals from stakeholder organizations uh, who, who oversee the standard setting process, uh, looking at the standard setting process said, you know, we, we think you can probably do a better job of really setting standards in the public interest, which is the term that they used. And so the whole standard setting process was reviewed and modified, and then all kind of converged together uh, about two to three years ago where the decision was made, we need to do uh, a fairly major update to the standards to make sure that they are fit for purpose. And that's what happened. So why should people care? Well, if you care about internal auditing, if you care about the standards that guide the professional practice of internal auditing, this is a big deal. Now, I would say it's a much bigger deal in terms of the change that people are seeing, as you you alluded to. You know, people are somewhat resistant to change. Hey, I was comfortable with it before. Why did you make a change? It appears to be an enormous change, but much of that is structural in nature to bring everything together. Uh, and and there's some there's some new standards, some new concepts, et cetera, and we can go into some of those if necessary. But to a great extent, it's really, as I say, just updating it, bringing things together, and making them fit for purpose in today's world. Okay. And there's we're talking standards. I've seen other other folks say this feels like more like a framework. And so standards, frameworks, methodologies, uh, guidance, uh, processes. Unless you're in the business of writing those, I certainly don't know if, if you ask me on any given one of those, what's the difference from one to the other? I, I don't really know. It's not you know necessarily what we do. Um, so for those people, can you help us understand the difference between standards and frameworks and why some people are arguing 
this feels more like a framework than a standard? Yeah. So, um, first of all, I would say I'm not sure it matters. I mean, so the, it, it's an interesting argument, and I understand why the argument's uh, out there. Um, let, let's take a step back. So, COSO has frameworks on internal controls and risk management. Embedded in those frameworks are principles, and then they don't call them standards. They just, you know, really talk about, you know, guidance on how to implement the principles. On the flip side, if you look at ISO, the International Organizations of the Standard Setters, they have standards which include principles, frameworks, and processes. But they're basically the same thing. Okay. So one of the one of the things uh, a lot of the people who are raising this question are again very familiar with the way the IPPF was set up in in the past and IPPF is the last F is framework. Um, what uh, they don't understand is now we're calling it global internal audit standards, but we're including principles, we're including the standards itself, and we've got also some some guidance basically in these considerations for implementation. So they're saying, that smells like a framework to me. Okay. And my answer is, call it what you want. We, we've you know, got to trademark something, and the belief was that calling it standards, because that's really, that's really what matters to the profession, is that we have standards. Calling it standards is, is probably the overarching term that most people care about. So we came up with the term uh, global internal audit standards, and that's what will probably be trademarked. But it includes most of the elements of the old IPPF. There's still a few uh, guidance-type elements that are not in it, but most of the old elements are there. So is it a framework? Is it standards? I don't know. Call it what you want. We're choosing to call it global internal audit standards. Okay. And I feel like some of that might come from it almost like you have to do it this way as opposed to the um, standards being you have more judgment and maybe more, I'll just say wiggle room, but um, as opposed to this framework, if we're calling it that, or for those that maybe see it like that as, as seeing it as, if you don't do it this way, it's wrong. If you have to do it this way, it's wrong. And maybe this kind of lends itself to uh, the next area I wanted to hit on. Uh, your friend, our friend of the show, certainly Hal Guerin, um, has been very vocal about uh, the proposed standards and he posted something recently, we post a lot, but he posted yeah. something recently that stuck out to me largely because he had the data to back it up, which uh, as a data person myself, I, I enjoyed that. Um, but I'm just gonna basically read directly from his uh, his post here and said, uh, Hal says, in comparing the current standards to the proposed standards, the use of the words must and ensure have exploded. And then he goes on to lay out the data. Use of the word must in the current standards approximately 130 times compared to use of must in the proposed standards approximately 300 times. And then the use of ensure in current standards is less than 10. Use of ensure in proposed standards is approximately 90 times. That seems like a calculated, we know what we're doing. This isn't just a, I just happened to turn out that way. If I'm just looking at the data anyway, yeah. what was the, what was the reasoning behind that? Why are we seeing that, um, in Hal's word explosion? So in the, the current standards, I'd like to call them the prior standards, but you know, whatever, um, uh, the, the standards typically had a single must statement and then a lot of other just statements with them, you know, sentences that didn't have must or should. They were clarifying sentences. We wanted to make sure this go around that it was clear what's a must, meaning you have to do it, otherwise you're not conforming, 
versus what's a should or a may, which are, we think these are good ideas, but you figure out what the best way to do it is. So in fact, uh, yeah, we actually have fewer standards in the, the new version than there was in the old version, but the must, number of must increase, you know, again, dramatically, that's uh, two and a half times more if, if Hal's, Hal's calculations are right, uh, primarily because we wanted to be very clear on if you want to achieve that principle, these are the things you have to do. Now, one other thing that I, I probably should have mentioned before, but is, is relevant here, in 2015, they had something called the IPPF Relook Project, and they, they came out with some, I think, some very, very good enhancements to the IPPF, one being the mission statement, and another being 10 core principles of internal auditing. Before that, we always said, well, the standards are principle-based, but well, what are the principles? They laid out 10 principles. Unfortunately, those principles didn't really map to the standards. So while the principles by themselves sounded great, and the standards seemed to work, it was really clunky to try and match them up. And in fact, there were a couple of principles where you really couldn't map any of the standards to the principles. So that's why the new structure now starts with a domain and then a principle, and then under each principle is a series of standards. Those must statements help you better understand what it takes to achieve the principle. And if, if we really believe these are principle-based standards, achieving the principle is what's important. Now, the word ensure is, uh, that's a little bit trickier. Believe me, we, we talked about that a lot. We were looking up in a you know, thesaurus for other, other yeah. words because we didn't like ensure. We couldn't come up with a better one. But we're hearing a lot, even before you know, Hal and others on LinkedIn brought up, uh, that came up at uh, GAM, the Global Audit Management Conferences. You know, how can you say insure here? How, you know, that, that almost seems too absolute, too black and white. Well, we didn't interpret it that way, but that's certainly one of the things that I think the Standards Board is going to have to relook at, maybe even defining what we mean by insure. Is insure you know, synonymous with reasonable assurance, or does it mean something else? And if we can't answer that very effectively, we may have to come up with a different word. So yeah, I, I think uh, that that was an interesting one. That was kind of eye-opening for me. I wasn't surprised about the dramatic increase in the must, but when I saw Al's tally of the insurers, it got me thinking that, yeah, maybe we have overused that word because it was an easy word to use and we need have to really revisit, is that literally what we mean or is there some other word that might, might get us there and perhaps be a little uh, more palatable for the public? All right. And there's also within the new standards, there's a, a new purpose statement in domain one. And yep. we spent, uh, we had Tim Leach on a couple of weeks ago and basically we got to the purpose statement and he went, I, I don't like it. I'm not going any further. And I went, okay. Um, but how does that relate to the old mission and definition of internal auditing? And assuming that everyone adheres to that purpose statement, every auditor in the world goes, yep, that's great. We're going to go do it that way. We're going to crush it. What's the actual change that we would see or, or what would our stakeholders, what, what change are they going to see from adhering to that? Yeah, so the, the purpose is really the stepping stone or the launching point for the rest of the standards. I mean, when you get into you know the governing domain, we talk about requirements for the board. Well, if the board doesn't buy into having an effective internal audit function, buy into trying to achieve that purpose statement, then yeah, there's no reason why they would want to even consider those requirements. So what we're trying to do is, is the purpose is really a combination of the old mission and definition. 
virtually every element of, of both of those are included somewhere in the purpose. And I think the key is, is that a lot of people look at the purpose and they see a single statement that's, that's uh, you know, really fairly brief, you know, internal auditing, you know, helps their organization be successful by providing objective assurance and advice. Mm-hmm. Um, we call that the elevator speech. You're stuck on an elevator for one or two floors. Somebody said, where are you from? Internal auditor. What's that? What does that mean? Well, you can rattle that off. Now, that's not the whole purpose, though. The purpose domain then has a series of bullet points. Uh, five of them talk about really the benefits of internal auditing and specifically say internal audit helps strengthen and then list five bullets. Then there's also some bullets that talks about really the uh, the conditions for being able to optimize internal auditing. So really, you have to look at all of those bullets together with that purpose statement for it to make sense. And in those bullet points, that's where we have a lot of the elements of the old mission and uh, uh, definition embedded because those are very good. We just didn't think that they were necessarily fit for purpose today. Pick the definition. The definition's been around since 1999. I don't know how you call something like a definition a required element of a framework. I mean, you're required to define it that way. That never made a lot of sense to me. But they had some very good pieces to it. So again, we merged those together. Um, I've seen a, a couple of Tim's uh, posts uh, about the the purpose, and he and I have even had a kind of a side conversation, not not about the specifics yet. But um, uh, you know, I, I, my concern with him is I think he was just focusing on that first statement and not looking at the bullet points because some of his posts he mentioned public interest. Well, hey, that's one of the bullet points there. Well, so I, I think people really have to look at it in its totality. And it's only we have one page. It's, there's not a lot to it. One slide, actually, a, a typewritten page. It's a lot less than that. Yeah. But I, I think people really have to look at and try to understand what we're trying to get to. It is extremely difficult to have a concise single sentence that people can remember. Um, and we've, we've we changed it multiple times just in the drafting process. I suspect we'll change it again now based on the public comments. Not sure if we'll end up where Tim wants it. We'll end up where Hal wants it. I don't know, but I suspect there will be some further changes. But the key is those bullet points and kind of extending that analogy is if you're in the elevator for 10 to 15 floors, somebody says, okay, that's a really broad statement you just helped. Yes, said, help an organization be successful. What do you mean by that? That's why we're all here. Well, then you can start to get into those bullet points, explain those in a little more detail, explain why internal auditing is unique relative to other functions in an organization. And that becomes, uh, you know, hopefully a little more informative elevator ride. That's what we're trying to get to with the purpose. We're talking about uh, posts and different posts on LinkedIn, et cetera. I feel like if, if you just went out there or anyone went out there and just posted, hey, we're doing away with the code of ethics. <laughs> I feel like the response would be like, this is like a joke or did you get hacked or something like that? Um, but the code of ethics has been eliminated. Uh, why has it been eliminated? And what was the standards board thinking when they created the ethics and professionalism domain? Well, so I, I, I think you almost answered your own question there because <laughs> I would say it hasn't been eliminated at all. It's been eliminated in title because remember I said before, there were all these different elements. And if you wanted to understand something, you have to go to multiple places. Well, we realized that there were elements of the code of ethics that were very similar to elements of the standards, so why not combine them together? So the thinking with the ethics and professionalism domain 
is that's what applies to individual auditors. Now, in the past, the code of ethics applied to individual auditors, as well as a few of the standards, some of the attribute standards, most applied to the internal audit function. Well, again, now we've brought them together. We've expanded a lot. There's actually much more information uh, you know, on, on really what's expected and why than there was in the, the old uh, standards of code of ethics. We just dropped the name. Well, enough people have been clamoring for that. I don't know what the standards board will decide, but I think it's something that will certainly be discussed. Maybe instead of just calling it the ethics and professionalism domain, maybe it'll be called the code of ethics and professionalism domain or ethics and professionalism, the, you know, the code of ethics for the you know, internal audit profession. Sure. I don't know, but to me, it's not been eliminated at all. I think it's actually been made more robust and uh, I think will serve the profession better as long as people understand that it's just as important to conform with the ethics and professionalism principles and standards as it was with the old code of ethics and rule of conduct. Yeah. And there's also been some surprise, some pushback that the governing domain includes requirements for boards. I think understandably so. I mean, that's kind of out of our control. Um, how can the IA impose those standards on boards when these are just internal auditing standards? Well, we can't is, is the answer. So here's, here's the thinking, and that's the only domain where we kind of departed from this is all about internal auditing because governing the internal audit function is critically important. The thinking was that, okay, we put in board requirements and CAE requirements and joint requirements because what we're trying to demonstrate there is to govern an internal audit function effectively, you need to have a close partnership between the board and the CAE, at least in particular. And so, yeah, I, I told people at, uh, at GAM recently that, you know, you wouldn't go in and just drop this in the board's lap. By the way, board is a broad definition. We use that, but here in the United States, it's primarily audit committee and even many other parts of the world. You wouldn't drop that in front of your audit committee and say, by the way, you got some new requirements now. Yeah. They, they throw it back at you. Yeah. But what we're trying to do is say, okay, use this as a way to start or increase the dialogue about things like the internal audit mandate, why being independently positioned and reporting to the board is so important, why oversight and authority from the board is, is so important. And when you do it that way, it, it's actually kind of common sense. Um, some kind of non-scientific polling we did at GAM, I had a breakout session on that, that domain and there's probably 150 people in the room, and I just said, show of hands, you know, how many people think that your board, when it's explained this way, would be comfortable embracing this? I bet 80 to 90% of the hands went up. People were very comfortable with that. And I think the reason is because there's not much that's really new in that domain. Yes, the must, the board must, those are all new statements, but the, you know, the intentions behind it were there in the old standards. The intentions behind it were there in what most successful internal audit functions were doing anyway. So I think, you know, again, as a CAE, you have the conversation, you say, okay, here are the requirements. Here are my requirements to help you, to help make sure that, you know, this isn't too onerous, that you understand what you're doing. And basically you're already doing it. We just need now to make sure that we've got a document or evidence in such a way, but there's not that much that's going to be new in there. Having said that, it's still going to be, a, I think, a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow. Uh, I do think that there's a possibility that conformance will go down as it relates to the standards in this domain. 
But that's why, again, if you separate it between board requirements and CAE requirements, a chief audit executive can say, hey, I did everything I was required to do. The board just didn't agree to it. They didn't sign up for it. And if that's the case, then so be it. That's the board's call. Yeah. You've still done your job as a CAE. I think that's the answer people are looking for because it's, I mean, we have no, not a lot of control over that necessarily. So, hey, I want to uh, adhere to the standards. I want to make sure I'm doing things the right way. It's, are you going to ding me for the board not adhering to it also? I think that's where some of the maybe uh, anger, if I can call it that, overreaction, maybe even some fear, yeah. some sweaty palms of going, well, what the hell? Uh, like, I can't control that. And so you're saying it that they're going to be judged uh, separately. Yeah, they, they can be. Now, we don't know exactly what the future quality assurance reviews are going to look like, but I, that's that was the intention in drafting that domain that way so that they could be judged separately. And, and you know, frankly, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not a CA anymore. I've retired from that. But thinking back to my audit committees and having this conversation with them, I frankly didn't think that would be a difficult conversation. And you have to do it right. I think the IA will need to develop some good implementation and advocacy, advocacy materials for, you know, chief audit executives to use. But as I say, most people in that room at GAM said, yeah, this isn't that big a deal. I, I think we can do this. Yeah, that's good. Really good to hear that there's going to be some uh, advocacy, as you put it. I would almost call it borderline training on, okay, this yeah. is how you can do this. Because I think a lot of people, maybe that 20% are the ones that probably would need that. And then, by the way, one other sidelight here is, you know, we've we've done a, a lot of pre-work with uh, stakeholder groups, had some public forums. Uh, and then we've also are asking them to respond to these standards. But I, I was in one forum in Washington, D.C., where we had somebody from the NACD and ICGN, which is an international corporate governance network. And their reactions kind of flowed the same way. First one was, you can't tell us what to do. But as right. we explained it, they seem to say, yeah, I can see why that wouldn't work. That seems reasonable to us. So, yeah, again, this is not going to be easy. Initially, it may be a little challenge for certain internal audit functions, probably in particular for CAEs who are newer to the role, maybe a little less confident in their, their role and positioning. But in the long run, I believe it'll work, and I think it's going to elevate the profession. A bit of a side note, like we have the advantage, I guess, of getting this additional context directly from you. Is there anything, else, other resources where where folks can go, I've got, you know, like I just, this doesn't make sense to me outside of uh, the comments that you can publicly make. Is there anything else that's being put out there by the IA um, that could be referred to? Well, yeah, a couple of things. First of all, um, it's a very relevant question right now. I just got off of an hour and a half webinar that had more than 4,000 people in, engaged in it. And uh, yeah, we were making these statements, obviously covering the entire standards, where we're going, et cetera. But, uh, you know, an hour and a half, there were like 460 questions that came in. We didn't have time to answer more than just a, a small handful of them. But that's one way of trying to get this message apart. I, I even saw in the, the Q&A, one person who I know said, hey, I've got some more questions. Can I contact you? I was like, yeah, by all means, yeah, go, go ahead and do that. The other thing that maybe is a little simpler um, is that, we are in the process of recording a uh, like a four to six minute overview of each of the domains. Uh, just yesterday, I think it was, I recorded the governing domain, you know, govern domain three uh, uh, overview, and I give this again as much as you can in four to six minutes. Mine was pushing that six minutes to the edge, but 
Um, yeah, I, I, we talk about that exactly. Here's what we're thinking. You know, here's how you should be looking at it. Doesn't mean everybody's going to agree with us, but still, we want to make sure that they have that context and some of those, you know, insights that, uh, you know, we developed as we were going through and, you know, drafting these standards that maybe don't jump off the written page. What about the, that's interesting you said that. So uh, for the 4,000 folks that were on that webinar, Paul just said you can uh, message him directly. So expect, you know, 4,000 <laughs> messages in your inbox soon. Um, but in an hour and a half, you have 460 questions. I know that um, the exposure draft is open for comments. We mentioned that at the beginning of the show. And then the link is obviously in the show notes for the folks that want to do that. If in an hour and a half, there was 460 questions from 4,000 and I has roughly what, 200,000 plus members. I'm just imagining like this massive amount of, I don't like that, you know, in the comments, I don't like this. I disagree with this. It should be this. No, don't do it that way, et cetera. The comments that you're going to get, could you kind of help us understand the process for taking those comments in, discussing them at whatever level and going, yep, we should, we should consider that. Okay. Move that to this board or whatever, you know, the case, just kind of help us understand how the, the comments that are being taken could potentially be uh, added or uh, the standards being updated based on those comments. Yeah, so uh, for example, the 460 questions we got today, to the extent we didn't get to answer them, I think we have to feed that into the process as well. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the, the process for you know getting comments through this public exposure period, then I'll talk about how we're gonna deal with them. The ideal way is the IIA is asking people to go in and complete a survey. Now, you can do as much or as little of the survey as you want. So, for example, for that uh, governing domain, you could go and say, I don't have any comments on that domain, and that you answer a couple of questions, then you're done. Or you can say, I have comments on the principle and every one of the standards. So you can answer as little or as much as you want. It's all you know captured electronically. You can make comments. And the reason the IA is pushing for that, for people to go through that process, is because we expect thousands and thousands of, of response. And then there's you know, probably you know, tens of thousands of individual comments that will come from that. Being able to sort it in an electronic tool, you can appreciate this from your data anal analytics background. First of all, we can tie it to demographic information, so we might have a better idea. Gee, are these comments coming more from CAEs or staff? Are they coming more from North America or outside North America? It gives us, uh, you know, some glimpses into maybe the little bit of the reason behind it. But it's also, again, it's it's just a way of being able to electronically gather a ton of unstructured information. Now, there are several people, some of whom you've already mentioned, who have been complaining, why can't we just send a letter to the IIA? And the answer is you can. We don't prefer that because, again, that's unstructured data. It's really hard to incorporate. But well, for some people, that's the way they want to communicate, and that's fine. We'll get those letters. I know there's already been probably half a dozen received, and those letters will be given the you know the the same you know level of consideration as what comes through the survey. Um, so what happens with all of this now? That's the scary part. We're we're taking a divide and conquer approach. So I, I was heavily involved in the development of Domain 3, so I'll have kind of an oversight role of Domain 3, and there's some standard board members who are going to dedicate their focus on Domain 3, and uh, they'll get all this information, they'll sift through it, and a lot of it is probably they don't understand, you know, we don't need to change. Some of it will be, oops, that was a mistake, we got to change that. And a lot of it will be, well, here's some themes that we need to discuss more fully 
with the standards board. The standards board is going to start uh, biweekly calls um, week after next uh, for the purpose of starting to have these discussions because we know it's going to be a tremendous amount of information. It'll all culminate in right after the international conference in Amsterdam. Uh, the standards board will meet for three days and then a, a few will be meet a day after that to make final decisions on where do we go. If the changes are so extensive, it's possible there may need to be another exposure. We're hoping that's not the case because obviously that uh, you know extends the timeline probably another six months. Uh, but you know we've got to be respectful of the public exposure process. I'm guessing they won't be that extensive. I think there will be a lot of changes. So if you look at a marked copy, the, that'll look like significant changes. But a lot of it will be let's change insurer to support, um, you know, change this word to that. Let's combine these two standards. Things like that that won't, in substance, require a re-exposure. But um, you know that that's going to be a uh, uh, the, the tremendous effort that uh, I, I really believe will help us get to something that will be a, um, uh, I, I would say the due process was handled properly so that everybody's uh, uh, comments were duly considered. Some of the people who want to send in letters and are sending in letters are asking, why aren't these being made available on the IIA's website? A lot of other standard setters do that. Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is we actually have uh, privacy considerations, not so much in this country, but when you get to you know like Europe with GDPR, um, yeah, we, we can't actually share specific things sent in by people without, you know, getting formal statements, you're allowed to do this, et cetera. And then you, you get into kind of a murky legal territory. The other thing is, I again, I think it's just going to be so much information out there that they wouldn't be very meaningful to be sharing all these letters. I think it's more meaningful. Uh, what we are planning is uh, when the final standards are issued, there will be some sort of a document that talks about the key themes that were heard during the public exposure period and how those themes were addressed. I think that's really what matters is you know, people don't need to see you know, tens of thousands of individual comments or you know, 100 individual letters. They need to see what are the major themes and how did you deal with them. And by the way, that's the approach that COSO and, and, and more and more other standard setters are following now. They're not really, that used to be the way it always was, but I think SEC still does that. But um, that standard setters are moving away from releasing kind of a compendium of everything that was received and focusing more on those themes. Okay. For those that are listening, they're going, okay, I need to go review these. I copied and pasted the standards, uh, I think probably the word, got a word count and then looked at like the average person reads at 300 words per minute, but that's if you're basically reading a novel. So slow it down if you need to actually think through, you yeah. know, like you're going to have to do with these. So put it at roughly two and a half, three hours to just, if you just read it straight through every word, what, and that's not a ton of time, but again, if you have to think about it, it's going to take significantly longer than that, which yep. you should be thinking about it. What, what maybe is a process you would follow as someone that's intimately familiar with them? Would you go, okay, here's a domain. Let me spend a little bit of time on that one. All right, tomorrow, let me look at domain two. Like, how would you break it down so that you could review it effectively? Yeah, so so first of all, the the, the tremendous number of words, I've, I've, I think it's 108 pages and some people are complaining about that. Understandably so. That's a lot to not just read, but to absorb and, and consider. Um, a majority of that, 
is really the the consideration section that well consider this for implementation consider this for uh, uh, you know documenting conformance if you look at just the the must part of it the the principles and the standards that's probably I don't know maybe a third of that number of pages uh, I looked at looked it up before uh, the the prior standards were 25 pages and that didn't include the mission uh, vision core values uh, code of ethics so there was probably 30 or 35 pages we actually have reduced the number of standards in total there are several things that we thought we could combine um, but yeah, if you want to read everything, it's still a lot. So back to your question, how would I approach it? I would probably do it a domain at a time. First of all, I'd start with domain one in the purpose statement, which is where most people are starting. Beginning is a very good place to start. And try to absorb that because, again, that is the foundation. And I would come up with, well, what are my comments? What are my concerns? What are my questions on that? Let me go and input that. And by the way, this online survey for the IIA, you don't have to complete it all at once. You can go in and do a little bit at a time, and that's what I think many people are doing. Then I would probably, I'd probably go in order. I'd probably look at the ethics and professionalism domain, but I'd probably first just read the standards. So again, that's that's just a few pages before I got into the consideration section, because if I understand the standards, they make sense to me, or I have some concerns about them, I can probably still comment at that point, and I may or may not need to even get into the consideration section. That consideration section, you know, that's a, a lot of that was the implementation guides, which, by the way, there was 181 pages of implementation guides in, in the, the previous IPPF. A lot of it was redundant. That's why we wanted to move them together so that, that you could eliminate a lot of the redundancies. But that's stuff that people will need to know eventually, but it may not be critical to know today because those aren't part of the must. Those are the shoulds, the mays you may want to consider. And so, again, I would probably go through that domain by domain if you get bogged down in a domain. And uh, some people may get bogged down when they get into the managing or performing domains because that's where you get into the bread and butter of performing an internal audit. Then you can just do it a standard at a time. But again, there's no problem putting it down and picking it up and you know, finishing the survey later. That's why this is a 90-day exposure period. We've only gotten, I, don't, I haven't seen statistics from this week, but as of last week, I think there were 140 people that had bothered to comment through the survey. And I suspect that we're going to have a rush of comments that come in the last couple of weeks of May. Yeah. Or in other countries where translations were a little later, those comments may come in in June because they got a later start on it. So, yeah, as I said before, uh, figuring out what to, how to respond to these comments is a scary proposition. It's going to get really scary the second half of May and in the June leading up to that uh, July International Conference. Yeah, sounds like a fun summer for you guys. <laughs> if, so there, we said it's 108 pages. It's large, two and a half, three hours if you just read through it. If you could pick the one thing from there and go, this is what you must do, and I'm going to put you on the spot, like you have to pick one thing, that we're the, a new change that needs to be implemented. What's the one thing in your opinion? Probably depends on your level. So if I'm a CAE, I think the one thing is jump right into domain three and understand what does that mean for me? Is this really much different? Do we need to change documentation? What kind of conversations do I need to have with the board or audit committee? Um, again, that's probably where I would go right away because that is most that's most relevant for the CAE. Um, for anybody else in the internal audit function, frankly, I'd probably 
just be paying attention to that purpose statement. Yeah, there's a lot of other principles and standards that matter, but ideally, I'd like every internal auditor around the world to have that elevator speech memorized. I mean, maybe they change the words a little bit. If somebody asked me, I'd probably use slightly different words that are in the purpose. I'd say basically the same thing. But again, you have to be able to internalize it and say, if, if somebody really wants to understand what is internal auditing, why is it important? How does it uh, you know, enhance success? I want to be able to articulate that. And I think that's the one thing that I hope every internal auditor around the world spends some time with. All right. So we've mentioned the uh, there's 108 pages. There's a lot going on, a lot to take in, not only from um, the proposed standards themselves, uh, but then also from just the conversation that we've had, which I'm sure there's going to be plenty more to come. But if there's anything that you'd want to leave the audience with, what would that be? Well, yeah, to me, one of my, um, I guess, mottos for life is never stop learning. Um, you know, part of that is the way I'm wired. But, you know, even though now I'm substantially retired outside of the standard stuff that's keeping me pretty busy, mm -hmm. um, I, I still love learning. I have, a, you know, a, a thirst for knowledge. And I think everybody has to do that in their own way. Um, you know, as it relates to the standards, you know, you may need to learn about every aspect of standards. You may just want to learn it from a top level. But to me is when you stop learning in life, that's when you you probably are getting ready for the, you know, the, the grave. It, life is so interesting, even if it's not professional in nature, never stop learning. Hey everyone, thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Audit Podcast. Whatever platform you're listening on right now, I'm sure there's a subscribe button somewhere, so please hit the subscribe button there. If you're listening through iTunes or Spotify, feel free to go give us that five-star rating. It only took me about 16 seconds to give myself a five-star review, and it really helps to get future guests to come on the show, so we'd really appreciate that. Lastly, be sure to check out the show notes and follow us on all our social media channels on Instagram, on LinkedIn, and on TikTok. Also, if interested, please sign up for our weekly newsletter from the Audit Podcast. Thank you all. Have a great one.